Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 337. My guests this week are Kate Verneberg, Suchitha Wickramsaria, Eric Benson, and Chichi Oniwa from Dauntless City Theatre's This Earth of Majesty, which is on now until August 28th at St. James Park in Toronto. Here's our conversation. Would one of you like to talk to me about this earth of majesty and tell me what that is? I will jump in on that. <laughs> um, I am the co-artistic director of Dauntless City Theatre, and I'm the director of this production. Uh, so this is an adaptation of Richard II um, that we're doing uh, in St. James Park this summer. Uh, and we adapted this text uh, with the help of A.J. Richardson, who is the dramaturg. So this is an ambulatory outdoor performance. So you follow um, the action from space to space within the park. Uh, and um, uh, it's it takes place, it's as if we have shrunk down to the size of a blade of grass and we are watching the insects and the sinister fairies go about their business. Uh, so that's sort of the, the conceit that we're working with here. Hmm. Now, I mean, Dauntless Dauntless City Theater, I mean, it used to have a different name. I don't recall the name, but has always done like site specific outdoor in in the city, um, in 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 places that you wouldn't expect to find uh, Shakespeare or any other theater. Um, what is uh, one of the unique challenges to doing Shakespeare um, in a space like this? I think there are many, and I, I'd love to hear from the actors' perspective what they perceive it to be. I mean, I guess I can jump in. Um, I think one of the challenges is that unlike a more traditional show, and I mean even a traditional outdoor show, not everyone in your audience is someone that planned to be there that day. Therefore, not everyone in your audience was primed for Shakespeare when they showed up. And uh, therefore, not everyone in the audience knows what the heck uh, they're seeing until, <laughs> I don't know, I'm guessing about two or three scenes in. Um, so I think that's one challenge. Yeah. Do you ever find that, that some people um, come more than halfway through? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people uh, join the show unexpectedly and stay to the end. Some people wander off in the middle. <laughs> it's very dynamic. And we, we place great um, importance on that in the style that we perform our Shakespeare in. Uh, because we know, I, I say this over and over in rehearsals, the audience can choose to go have an ice cream at any time and don't let it be your scene that they decide to wander off and get an ice cream in. Um, so we really, it's really honest to hold their attention and to do something that matters in front of them. So I guess one of the questions that I would have is how, I mean, the 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 sort of flippant answer is act good but how do you hold an audience's attention when there are streetcars going by there's kids playing in the park there's people walking by there's party goers going wherever they're going like how do you hold the attention of an audience that that has so many potential distractions well i think that um Somebody likened it to children's theater or all ages theater, that your energy levels have to be consistently high. You know, there's so many distractions. There's so many good ice cream places that, 
the audience has to be entirely engaged. They just have to be entirely engaged. And it's very much like doing theater for for kids or for all ages audiences. Because you, if you kind of decide to phone it in for for a scene, like those audiences immediately clock out. And I think it's very similar with with this. With you have to be loud enough to be heard over the streetcars. You have to be interesting enough that you know, like. <laughs> that the band that's decided to play on the other side of the park doesn't take their attention. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's a question of energy levels. It's a question of absolute engagement, which is, which is, you know, ideal for, for performers anyway, I think, but even more important for a piece, for, for theater like this. Mm. Now, one of the things that, that Dauntless is pretty known for is, um, in terms of the the Shakespeare that that's being created is to to make it a little queer or sometimes a lot queer and also to be anti-oppressive. So I'm curious just to start with for each of you, um, what do those things mean to you? And um, Shakespeare being a, a, a colonial thing, how do you present Shakespeare in an, in a anti-colonial way? Mm. That's a fantastic question, and it's one that we wrestle with all the time. It's really important to me that we do these pieces in a way that reflects the city that we actually live in. We cannot put a play up in the park that doesn't reflect the reality of the space that it lives in. So we are always striving to represent, not just the people who might be the core demographic in a place like Stratford, but the people who come to the park, um, as my colleagues were saying, is the people who don't expect to be there and to be in the middle of the performance. Uh, so that's something that I have my eye on as artistic director, as co-artistic director. I'll also add just doing Shakespeare period today. I, I always ask myself the question, you know, just why though? Um, and then, then I asked that question as someone who actually actually quite likes Shakespeare. Um, and I think for the most part, if, as Kate said, it isn't relevant to either the city we live in or the world at large that we live in, then there isn't a point. Uh, and so with this play particularly, like Kate, uh, when we were chatting about it at the, uh, before we even started and she was talking to me about the role uh, we were talking about what does uh, transfer of power look like um, in context of modern society and what does uh, who, who are the rulers we want to win um, and how do we be get fooled by uh, those who we want to be fooled by and all those questions that I think this play asks and uh, doesn't necessarily give you straightforward answers, but definitely makes you think deeper about them. So I think that's one good reason to do a play like this. That doesn't mm. answer your question about, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> queer um, representation at all. Um, but I think uh, that will be perhaps better answered by Chichi or Eric. But I mean, you guys, I mean, this is, this is a, a, an adaptation of Richard II, which is kind of a queer mm. play anyway. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about about Kate Chichi if you have thoughts about the the queering of Shakespeare, uh, especially as as as, a, as it pertains to this show. 
Yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to speak to that as I, I adapted to this and I am a queer person. Um, it was so you referenced that Richard II is often thought of as a queer play. And I think, I think there are a couple of things that stick out <laughs> uh, in the history of performance of this play. One, that there are often queer actors who play Richard. And two, that it's sort of like a dirty secret that Richard is coded queer. Uh, and it was very important to me that we not, um, even accidentally replicate that dynamic uh, in our version. Um, we have uh, a Richard who is an out and proud king. We are not trying to conflate the idea of queerness with badness or incompetence. Uh, so and you'll see that in our adaptation, I hope. Um, maybe Eric, who is playing this part, would like to speak to that. And I really, I'm very curious to hear Chi-Chi's thoughts as well. Sure. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I find really interesting about, about this particular adaptation, and I think like the work that I've seen with Dauntless before, uh, when it comes to queerness, uh, is, and I'm really pleased about this, that the world in, in say, Richard II or This Earth of Majesty is, is a world in which queerness like absolutely doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> you know, like, Nobody, there's not, it's not a point of interest for Richard's character or for the world that Richard is maybe a queer king. And we never really talk about like the gender of Richard's spouse or any of that. Like it's not, it's not presented. It's not, we've kind of, I worked, I think worked hard to make sure that that's not a factor in the consideration of what Richard is. It's just kind of like, it's, oh yeah, that's just kind of, that's, that's the dude, that's the person, that's the character. And I think that that's really valuable and I'm not trying to undermine. Uh, and I think it's important to note, I, I'm a gay person myself. So I think it's important not to undermine that there are elements of queer culture that, that are eternal, that are like owned by queer communities. And it's not that we're trying to get rid of those and we never will. We never should try to, but being able to put on a play, which is in my mind, a form of like perfected reality, right? in which you get to pick and choose which elements are important. And in a weird way, removing the importance of that element is a way of empowering it. If that makes sense that um, like Richard is not a gay King. He's a King. Like, yeah, probably gay. I don't like, I don't really care. And I hope that the audience doesn't care because as, as Kate was pointing out, and it's something that playing the character of Richard has been super important to me is I don't want random passing by audiences to accidentally or deliberately in their own minds conflate queerness and authority or queerness and say kingliness or whatever uh, as bad things you know richard's kind of crap king and i don't want anyone passing through to be like oh yeah the gay king sucks huh no no not not true not true and it's been for us it's been for me sorry i shouldn't say for us for me it's been a bit of a sticky journey does that make sense yeah, Chi-Chi. Yes, um, I'm not sure if I can speak to the uh, queer representation in the production, but I can speak to, uh, you know, making it anti-colonial. I find that um, the role that I'm playing, Trial of Bright Lake, is someone who has, you know, suffered a great loss and the authorities that be haven't really done anything to... Um, 
you know, either investigate or to make reparations. So uh, the trial of Bright Lake takes it into her own hands to, um, you know, bring about change. And while she may go a bit too far, the, the I think in making uh, this production, you know, anti-colonial, I think it gives the trial of Bright Lake agency and seeing as how she's played by myself, a black woman, um, through that lens, it does, you know, represent a lot of uh, the community in what we're dealing with today, especially with, um, you know, with black lives being uh, handled with authority and how that is all very muddy. So I, I find that, you know, having passerbys see myself as a child, right? Like, you know, making bold choices and seeking, um, answers, I think that will definitely spark interest into whoever's walking by and, you know, have them stop and take in what's going on. Cause it, they'll see myself, they'll see, you know, our cast and they'll see, um, yeah, you know, they'll see themselves. And that's so important. I, I'm curious about for all of you, and I'd like Kate to go last on this, but um, as far as your history with Shakespeare, either in performance or as an audience or both, um, how uh, what's your experience with Shakespeare been? What's your relationship with with Shakespeare's plays? Woof. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I really disliked Shakespeare when I was, you know, like a teenager. Because as somebody who's getting into theater, I was like, oh, everybody loves Shakespeare. I should hate it. You know, that sort of thing. Um, and then I had to learn a monologue for an audition or something. It's like, oh, shit, this is really deep. This is, <laughs> there's a lot. Whoo, there's a lot here. This is awesome. Uh, and then I kind of went from there. And I didn't do a lot. But then kind of one year. Uh, I was I was in the process of applying for a mentorship program at, at the at Stratford the Shakespeare Festival, and that year I was like I'm just going to do as much as I darn well can and like played Cassius in one show, was played Edmund in kind of a stage reading of Lear and assistant directed Twelfth Night and there was another one I just forget I just did as much as I possibly could and. I just love it. I love early modern theater. I love the poetry of it. I love, um, like it's, I, I hesitate to go down the precious route of it. Uh, but I just, there's something about that particular era of which I personally feel Shakespeare was a height that i I just, I find really attractive and really interesting and delicious and tasty and timeless and, um, very, very human. Yeah, that's my answer. Chi-Chi, I think you had you had uh, started to have a thought. Uh, do you have thoughts on that? I do. Uh, yes. Um, for me, Shakespeare has, the language itself has really spoken to me. It's always been very um, poetic and beautiful, much of what Eric was saying. Um, but I think I came into it kind of with the, uh, I would say the, uh, the roadmap of, knowing that the roles that would be offered to me would be quite limited because of, you know, of who I am. I'm a black woman and Shakespeare is primarily um, for Caucasians. So I, I always came in with that, um, 
that kind of sitting in the back of my head. And I think it wasn't until I got into university, I think it was in my third year, I was taking a couple of Shakespeare courses and we were doing scene studies and I got offered, you know, to play the role of Juliet in the balcony scene. And for me, that was, um, it was just very, I was pleasantly surprised, but also very bewildered because I usually expected myself to be playing, you know, the nurse or some sort of um, best friend's side character. So to be offered, you know, the lead in such a, you know, memorable scene, it was uh, both very exciting and really gave me the, uh, the confidence to see myself as, you know, not just the side character, as someone who could play um, multiple different roles within the Shakespeare canon. And uh, yeah, you know, so to be playing, you know, the trial of Bright Lake in this production of Richard II, it's been really, really exciting. And, you know, again, going back to the idea of having agency and, you know, taking matters into my own hands via the trial of Bright Lake. It's, it's been very fun and exciting and it just keeps adding to my, my toolbox of um, roles that I can play in the future. Suchita, how about you? Yeah, I almost have the opposite journey to Gigi in some ways. Um, it was, so when I was a kid in uh, school in Sri Lanka, um, I had a really uh, amazing uh, school where, you know, you, you could be a jock, you could be an arts kid, you could be whatever you wanted and no one judged you for that. Uh, and so the Shakespeare kids were actually some of the cool kids. Um, but I was never one of the cool kids, so I never did Shakespeare. Um, and then when I went to university uh, for engineering, uh, I decided I would join kind of uh, the musical theater stage society. Um, but I kept getting ensemble roles uh, and, you know, kind of comedy parts, but nothing particularly meaty and serious. And then on a whim, I just decided to audition uh, for the Shakespeare Society and at the university and they started giving me more meaningful roles. Um, I played Yakimo in Cymbeline, uh, uh, which was not a role you know, I genuinely would have thought I, I could have played at the time. Um, and then I played uh, Alcibiades in Timon of Athens. Um, and I realized that I was actually quite good at Shakespeare because I really love poetry. I love living uh, in heightened language um and i think you know uh, like eric I, I don't necessarily think shakespeare is the best but i do think he uh, has absolutely uh, mastered a sense of that uh, of poetry and heightened language uh, for that era of writing certainly um and so yeah that's kind of how i got into it um but then i went to uh, actually study musical theater and into do Shakespeare for many years and then fell into the same kind of catch-22 of uh, if you don't have any Shakespeare on your resume, no one will give you Shakespeare. Um, and I was very fortunate in the space of like three months, no, four, about yeah, three to six months, um, I landed two Shakespeare gigs back-to-back by people who didn't care about those things uh, and at fairly decent companies. Um, and since then, I've kept 
in touch with Shakespeare, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, and I'm and here I am now. Mm. Kate gave me a call, and now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Kate, Kate, what what how what? Tell me about your relationship with Shakespeare. Mm. What really pushed me down this path? I may have told this story already on your podcast, but I'll tell it again. Um, When I was in second year university, I first met the dear departed Ian Watson, who taught us. And he was a very inspiring teacher. He was the sort of person who would look around the room and, and you would tell him your, what you thought were your silly little ambitions. And he would say, well, why not you? Why shouldn't you do it? He uplifted people. And he uplifted me all the way into playing <laughs> the good part of King Lear. Like the last, the, the first, the storm scene through the last mad scene I got to do when I was 20 and in second year university. I'm sure I did it very, very badly. But what I remember from that is we were in rehearsal one day for the storm scene. And, you know, I was struggling with my text as, as we do. And he said to me, you know, we were doing uh, the, you know, uh, talking to the, the beggars of Lear's realms, you know, that your looped and windowed raggedness, your houseless heads, you know, wheresoever you are. And he just looked at me and he said, Kate, there are people right now sleeping on the subway grates outside of Tim Hortons. And what did you do about that today? It's like, nothing. I, I did nothing about that today. And it was him who really put in my mind how we can use this text to talk about the important pieces of some of the human experience. How, because this is, you know, <laughs> something that that's horrible to know is that like the settler kits that they would give people who were, you know, settling the stolen land we call Canada, they had two books in those kits and it was the Bible and it was Shakespeare. This is what we have lying around our colonial house. And we kind of have to use it to our advantage. And so that's always been my attraction to this. The immediacy of the language, the beauty of the poetry, and how can we use it to our advantage? So Ian started me down that path. And then I met Scott, who, <laughs> who uh, founded Dauntless City Theatre and was our first artistic director. And I auditioned for him a couple times and, and didn't make it into his productions. And, and then, then he gave me Hermione in The Winter's Tale. And I remember standing in the square the first time we did it outside, you know, the courtroom scene. And I just remember the park stopped. And there, you know, mums with their prams and business people on their lunch breaks. The park stopped and watched with great attention. And it just hit me in that moment that I represented everybody who is having a terrible marriage. You know, people in St. Jamestown, people in Rosedale, behind closed doors, people in this city are having this conversation. And in that moment, I represented them. And that is my impetus. That is what spurs me on to continue in this line of work, is that kind of immediacy and relevancy is what I seek. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think... I don't know about, about you, Kate, or the rest of you. Um, I've been having, as, as, you know, I grew up, uh, I still remember the first Shakespeare I saw. 
Um, I was the kid at, in school, and when I when we were studying Shakespeare, the one who who admitted to liking Shakespeare, you know, because um, you know they teach Shakespeare so poorly. But it, I have such a difficult relationship with Shakespeare now, partially because of the 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 way that it's been treated, the colonial nature of it, the the way that you know the Bible, the as you were saying, Kate, the giving of the Bible, the and and the works of Shakespeare and all of that stuff. Um that I feel like um it's been used poorly. Like the idea of when Chi Chi says that it's that it's something for white people, then I and I think I agree. Like, and it's no wonder that that that's how we see I've I've seen productions that 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 feature uh, black actors, where they suddenly get start getting comments like, "Oh, but that character was historically white." Like, yeah, but worse than that, and it's it's something that 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 I think is it, that kind of history makes it difficult to to wrestle with. Um, what do you guys think about about wrestling with with that history with um, with the way that it it's been used in the past? Um, so one part of my story that I didn't talk about is I actually work for uh, another Shakespeare company called Shakespeare in Action in the city. Um, and we've been wrestling with this, uh, for the better part of the last two years, uh, because we were settled in Weston, uh, which is, uh, if you look at the last century, um, a very white community, but then in the last 30 years, uh, 30 to 50 years has been a heavily uh, Vietnamese Canadian, Jamaican Canadian, uh, most in the last three decades or so, Somali Canadian uh, community. Um, and if you, I, I've managed to do some of the research on this. Um, one of the major attractions of, of Western is the train station. Um, and even though there's no evidence of indigenous communities in Western uh, that we have record of, um, we have evidence of them uh, at Blow Street on that train line. Um, and when we set ourselves up in in this community, uh, in, in that community, sorry, uh, in any community, truly, in, in, in Canada, um, we have to wrestle with all of those realities as we make art. And so we ask ourselves, at least I ask myself, uh, the question, if we're telling this story, who does it serve? Who does it ignore? And who are we trying to appease? Uh, and if we can answer all those three questions, um, and the answer to all three certainly isn't uh, the people who already have power, the people who already have influence, the people who already um, whose narratives are already told <laughs> uh, ad nauseum, then I think there may be a purpose. But still, um, you know, I'm not a Shakespeare purist. I will rewrite entire monologues in modern in the middle of a piece. Um, it, for some of our adaptations, we, we've we've just uh, the most recent one we did uh, called Three Tempests. Uh, included stories from Hurricane Hazel in Toronto 1954, uh, as well as uh, stories from COVID-19 from uh, nurses and patients uh, in around uh, the Northwest Toronto area. 
so that, yeah. So if, if I'm not doing something exciting with Shakespeare, if I'm not doing something that's uh, relevant and current with Shakespeare, then there's zero purpose to it for me. I think that's the big question because, you know, I've seen people will say that you could do anything with Shakespeare. And I've seen people try to do weird things with Shakespeare that sort of bump up against the words, right? You can go so that your concept works against it. But I think that, that, mm-hmm. um, like you said, it has to, it has to have a purpose. It has to have a relevancy to now. It can't just be, be- I think I'm tired of seeing Shakespeare plays done because I really like that play. And I think that that I I want to see in my Shakespeare more than just I really like that play. I want to see what its relevancy is. I want to see more than that when I see Shakespeare. Right. And like the, the interrogation is, okay, but why do you like that play? Right? Because I like that play is fine, but is that the only play you like? Mm. <laughs> you know, why that play today? Mm-hmm. Because I, I I bet you there's at least you know every artistic director in this country has at least ten plays that they really like, mm-hmm. um, and you know at least a hundred more that they would like to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so why this Shakespeare play? Why Shakespeare at all? Um, and people you know, people constantly bring up this thing is you know it's a classic, and again such a colonially um, tinted tainted word because roomy is classic it's just not in some people's minds rabindranath tagore um 18 i think mm. 19th century um indian poet is classic mm. but you know there's only there's only 2 billion people who know who he is <laughs> <laughs> you know um and, and but 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 that's not the work that's considered classic, uh, and I think that there's definitely a hierarchy in um, in how we think about um, what the classics are, um, and it's very much a hierarchy of ignorance, in my opinion. Um, and that's why you know, right now, for example, Shakespeare in Action is not doing a Shakespeare play for its summer show. We're doing a Korean fake folk tales play. Um. Because that's what we thought would be more connected this year to our community. Hmm. Yeah. I want to change gears a little bit. And I want to ask uh, some questions uh, 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 of each of you. Um, Chi Chi, I just, apropos of nothing, I understand that the Scream trilogy is your favorite horror film trilogy. Um, As somebody who um, has never really been a horror watcher tell me why i should enjoy and watch the scream trilogy that is a great question i'm glad you asked that um i i think you should definitely check out the scream trilogy simply because it's my type of horror which is just on the edge of um Gore, but like it's campy core if that makes sense it's if you're someone who's not into all the gore and the mess then it's like right up your alley because it's not too messy it's mostly um commentary on the actual horror genre which i find really really fascinating and really funny to watch um 
And also I love that uh, Neve Campbell, she is the screen queen. She is Canadian. So it's really cool to see someone who, you know, um, I share the same nationality with who is leading this, you know, this whole franchise. Um, but yeah, I, I think if anything, you should watch it because of the horror commentary as well as um, Randy. He is a movie buff kind of like myself. And he, a lot of what he says is very, very accurate to what happens. So um, without spoiling it, definitely check out the, yeah, definitely check out the Scream trilogy. Now, outside of the Scream trilogy, are you a horror fan or are you, is, is Scream the horror trilogy that you like? Ooh, uh, I'm definitely a horror fan outside of the Scream trilogy. That just happens to be my favorite. Um, but yeah, outside of that, I, I love um, The Cabin in the Woods, another you know movie that makes that pokes fun at the horror genre. Hmm. Um, I, I, I would say I kind of like dip my toe every once in a while into the sci-fi horror. I haven't seen Nope by Jordan Peele yet, but that is definitely on my list. I've heard nothing but good things and... I do love a little bit of a alien sci-fi meets horror film. So um, yeah, I, I would call myself a horror buff. Mm. I, I also enjoy listening to horror podcasts. Um, mm. Yeah. It's, it's something that I, that I like to do. I don't know how I fell into it, but um, I'm sure it has <laughs> to do with my childhood, but uh, yeah. Now, when you horror say horror is- podcasts, are you talking about like those, like, true ghost story kind of uh, podcast or are you talking about like fiction oh yes um definitely fiction i, I find that um with the horrors of today i do not need to listen to a true crime por- um true crime podcast i feel no. that yeah it's it would be a waste of my time i would much rather dive into someone's you know world of their imagined stories and mm. uh kind of pick their brain through that lens hmm now, Sushita, I, there's something that, that I have to ask you about as uh, because I know that you are a sci-fi fantasy nerd. Um, but as, as am I, longtime nerd, geek, whatever, but you've never played Dungeons and Dragons. And I am curious why. Yeah, to my ever now, actually, shame. I need I need to jump in and say that it's not a judgment. No, no, it's, it's to my because, shame, to be honest. Because I spent many, many years because my first D&D experience was bad because the story, the, the dungeon master was bad. So I never picked it up again until much, much later. So what is it that has prevented you? Well, so I'll start by saying that, you know, growing up in Sri Lanka, Dungeons and Dragons, at least from my experience, is just not a thing. I don't think anyone <laughs> that plays it. Um, uh, and... I even though I have been a sci-fi fantasy nerd from childhood, none of my friends were. Um, so I was just you know enjoying it on my own. Some buying all the novels and all the comics and everything I can get my hands on, um, but none of my friends did it. So that's part of the reason. Um, I you know I, I started playing Magic: The Gathering in university when I was suddenly surrounded by a bunch of engineer nerds, uh, which is great. Uh, and I really appreciated that. But uh, I I really haven't had a close circle of friends who play uh, Dungeons & Dragons until I started working on, uh, uh, half the cast has heard me plug this already, but Off the Beaten Path, the musical, uh, which is a choose-your-own-adventure D&D fantasy uh, musical, um, which if you're a D&D fan, 
highly recommend you go check it out. We perform it once a month on Zoom and there's spin-offs and so many things and Discord and more. Um, so I'm basically just waiting for a group of friends uh, to play Dungeons & Dragons with um, who have space for me. But that's really the answer. I understand. I understand. Um, now, I'm just going to stay with this for another second. Not about D&D, but as a sci-fi fantasy nerd, mm. what was your gateway drug into being a sci-fi <laughs> fantasy nerd? Oh, that's... I'll give you the, the short answer is Isaac Asimov. That's an excellent answer. That is an excellent answer. The, the, the longer version is I think I've been one since before I knew what that genre was. Because, I mean, I was, so I, you know, sci-fi nerds are going to think I'm, I'm, I'm a real loser here, but I've never seen the original, I've never seen Star Trek uh, Next Gen or whatever the first series, series is called. Um, I've, I've started watching Star Trek with Voyager. Um, which, of, all, of all the ones to start with. And you know what? At the time I watched it, I had loads of fun watching it. I mean, um, no, it's. I mean, that one is good. It's the unfortunate thing is that it, you. It's followed by by the worst of the bunch. Oh, I mean, I didn't watch that, <laughs> so That's you know, something. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's something, I guess. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I started watching. Um, I got into sci-fi pretty young. Uh, I've been watching anime since I got cable as a kid, uh, because that was the only way we were going to get anime as kids, um, and. I, yeah, you know, to me, Lion King is fantasy in some ways. Uh, it is just such a reinterpretation of of the of a story of betrayal and all of that through this completely mm. fantastical lens. To me, Disney is fantasy. Uh, I know fantasy nerds don't count it as fantasy, but uh, I, to me, it really is. And so, I I think I've been fantasy since I was a child. Um, and it's just as I got older. I, I started to get broader and broader with it. Uh, so Lord of the Rings uh, definitely was kind of like, you know, in terms of high fantasy, quote unquote, um, probably my first entryway. Uh, then Terry Brooks um, uh, with the Shannara series uh, into fantasy uh, from Isaac Asimov. I went to Arthur C. Clarke, uh, partly because he's Sri Lankan. Um, um, and yeah, I've, I've just kind of kept going down that path with anything I can have the time to read. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Now, Eric, I, I know that you were uh, a member of the Popo theater in Halifax. Are you from Halifax originally or like, how did you find your way to that company? No, I'm not from Nova Scotia at all. I'm from Northern Saskatchewan. Um, and I found my way to Halifax, uh, partly because I kept following in my sister's footsteps. Uh, my sister is a phenomenal actor, for example, and that's uh, really what I would argue non-metaphysically is the chief reason that I got into theater, uh, because I saw her perform. When I was five, I saw her perform in some school play, and I was like, I'm going to do that, because she's good. Anyway, she didn't pursue theater, and I did, so too bad. Uh, but then she went to university in Halifax, and I did... I. I had a very brief stint at theater school and then left theater school. 
and took a year of linguistics at university in Saskatchewan and just kind of didn't really respond to that atmosphere. The, the subject matter was fascinating, but I wasn't feeling it. And then wound my way to Halifax to go to the university that my sister did. And so that's really what landed me there. And then in a very specific, to answer your question very specifically, um, a friend of mine with whom I'd done some theater in university, the university I went to had a very, very active student theatrical society. And I did a lot of plays. And one of the people I did a fair number of, of plays with said, you should come see this show that an independent company in Halifax has put on because my my partner is in it. And I think you would really like their artistic director, Nudge Nudge. I did really like the artistic director for what it's worth. Uh, the two of us then were, were, we were partners for seven years uh, after, after seeing that show. And of course I just kind of then fell into the company that he was working with, uh, that he was running. And it was fascinating work. It was very political. It was very, uh, kind of experimental and also not expert. Like we kind of did everything. And that's, that's really the, the, the long answer. I guess there is no short answer is I just kind of wound my way to, to Halifax from Saskatchewan and then fell in with this, what I think is an awesome theater company. Hmm. Awesome. That's great. Um, Here's an interesting question just to bring things around back towards uh, the, the, the earth of majesty. Um, we're still in a pandemic, no matter how much people might want that to be gone. Um, and, you know, one of the I think one of the safest things that you could do is probably perform outdoors. But how has the pandemic um, informed uh, this production and, 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 and whatever protocols are, are happening around that and just the performance in general. Um, Kate, I'll start with you. Yeah. I mean, I think we're very lucky in that we are an outdoor theater company. Uh, so it is more, sorry, I realized it was far from my mic. I'm just going to start that again. Um, yeah, we're very lucky that we are an outdoor theater company. Uh, so we already have a precedent of performing outside. Uh, one adjustment we made right off the bat this year was we also wanted to rehearse outside. Um, so we've been doing that mainly. We've only had one weekend where we needed to, to come inside full time. Uh, you know, we, we have an, a strange rehearsal schedule to accommodate as many jobs <laughs> as we possibly can. Um, we also, uh, you know, just did simple things like we bought a box of N95s and we encouraged everybody to wear them. Uh, you know, our wonderful stage manager, Jackie uh, Williams, figured out that um, we as an organization actually qualified for COVID tests. So uh, the greater the Greater Niagara Chamber of Commerce has been furnishing us with um, COVID tests uh because I actually live in Niagara and we rehearsed a little bit in Niagara. So, um, you know, we're very grateful for that practical support so that we can actually test uh, and have that reassurance as well. Um, so we've just been trying to do those simple things of wearing good quality masks that follow science of being tested and, and working outside as much as we can. 
And I'm curious what everybody else thinks, uh, how they, how you feel about, about being back to performing, how you feel about, about performing in front of audiences, especially in a situation like this. What's, what are you guys looking forward to? What are you concerned about? Tell me, tell me everything. Chichi, how about you? Yeah, uh, for me, it's been, um, I, I would say it's kind of like learning how to ride a bike again. Um, you know, you got to start to recall your um, your training and, um, you know, remember that you're back in the room with living, breathing people and, you know, figure out how to uh, collaborate. And yeah, personally, I think the hardest part for me has just been remembering how to uh, memorize lines again. Uh, that's always been a challenge before. And, you know, with the pandemic, many things were happening. And so now having the, you know, the gift and the opportunity to have that be um, a struggle is, uh, it's been both very, um, it's been both a blessing and just, you know, a challenge just to remember how to do all of that. But um, yeah, it's, it's been fun. And uh also the, you know, remembering that you're performing in front of people. Uh, so like keeping that performative element in your, in your performance, as well as making sure that you're serving the story. It's just a lot of um, juggling balls that I'm learning how to <laughs> juggle right now. But yeah, it's, it's been pretty, um, it's been pretty fun to, you know, stress, stretch those muscles again. I don't know if you or anybody else has experienced this, but I'm rehearsing for my own show that I'm doing at the Fundy Fringe uh, later this month. And the first thing that I noticed is that all of my breathing technique, all of my my proper projection technique, all of that stuff out the window. It's like I've forgotten it all after yep. two years of, uh, of, of this. And I just, oh. It's just like like trying to relearn it while also trying to learn how to remember how to perform. Have you guys found any of your, your technique missing or or rusty first i just want to say Gigi, i don't know what you're talking about when you say you struggle with memorizing you came off book first of everyone in the cast <laughs> but <It's> secondly crazy, <laughs> but... <laughs> hey hey you did though <laughs> um but no i i honestly the thing that came that was hardest for me to build was building back the technique of self-confidence um because to me i think that is actually part of the technique of an actor is to build your confidence uh in what you can do and what you do do um and i i remember i remember uh, you know halfway through the pandemic going oh um I wonder what, you know, other actors are doing, discovering that, you know, some people were like getting in shape and learning new acting skills and doing all of this extra work. And I was in a, you know, 10 to 6 uh, uh, arts administration job um, and not finding the energy or the motivation to work on any of my skills. And so finding my <laughs> confidence in myself continuously dipping as I did less and less work. Uh, I was lucky enough to do a few Zoom uh, workshops and even a couple of in-person workshops uh, at the top of this year. Uh, but this is the first time I've put together a whole play in costume on my feet with other people in the space where we actually interact with each other. 
um, as opposed to maintaining six feet at all times. Um, and so finding the confidence to simply walk up to someone and hold their gaze <laughs> um, while being, you know, less than two feet away from them. I, yeah, I, I found that was the thing that was the hardest to do. Mm. Eric, how about you? Yeah, learning lines. I'm typically really good at learning lines and it, it has been a muscle that's gone a little bit haywire. So that's been frustrating, not going to lie. Uh, also, um, on top of that, I guess, is <laughs> not having performed outdoors for a while, my voice is shot. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. It'll be fine by Friday. But even today, I'm like, I'm wandering around my house. It's our day off today. I'm like, wow, my voice is really low. And my throat's a little bit sore. And I'm kind of gravelly. What the heck is going Oh, I've been yelling in a park for a week. Oh, I'm not used to this. So that's been, you know, that's been a little bit that's been a little bit of something that I have to relearn and drinking the right tea and making sure I'm hydrated and projecting instead of yelling and, you know, that sort of stuff. Those, uh, and especially being in a busy park and there's streetcars and there's music and there's children, you know, like just kind of remembering to support my voice <laughs> instead of strain my voice has been something fun to relearn. It's kind of amazing how quickly we forget those things that we spent so long learning. Um, I know, like I was saying, like just 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 talking for an hour has been has been I've had to relearn how to do that. Um, Kate, as far as um, putting this show on its feet, returning uh, to live performance in the pandemic, um, how do you feel about it? What's what's like, tell me about about this this return for Dauntless to to live performance. This return means so much to me. Uh, Chanakya Mukherjee and I uh, came into leadership at Dauntless, I guess, at the beginning of 2021, and we really hoped to have a summer season in person that year, and we made some very difficult decisions, looking at what was possible and what was safe what we didn't know and what we couldn't control. And we decided not to pursue it because it, it just seemed too risky to us. So to be able to be in a place where we could have safeguards, where we could, where we had more knowledge about what was riskier, what was less risky, and to be able to accomplish this means the world to me. As an actor, my happiest days were in the Dauntless Company. And so to be able to recreate that, I hope, <laughs> for others, is really important to me. Um, I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten part of your question. <laughs> Could you repeat it, Phil? That's all right. We're just, just, I just, I want. I'm just curious about about any of you. I think you've answered the question oh. of, of oh, of this the is the other thing yeah. I wanted to say. Yes, is that because we have had these two, three years of disaster and bad management. And also things like life-saving vaccines. I am so happy we are prepared. Uh, you know, we had a general understudy. We have a, we have an understudy bench that's three deep. <laughs> there's me, there's our producer, and then we had a general understudy. And we did lose an actor who had to step away from the show. And that understudy, is his, his name is Ryan Bannon, and he's joined our main cast. I think he joined us on like three days ago, <laughs> fully. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's been incredible. 
you know, I am not pressed. Uh, I'm so proud of this cast. They're doing incredible work. I think they're doing stuff that uh, will comfort the troubled and trouble the comfortable. Um, and uh, it's a joy for me to support them and to watch them do their work. Uh, one of our cast members yesterday said to me, you seem really calm for someone who's in tech week. And I'm like, yeah, nobody's dying. Literally. I'm just like, this is thrilling. <laughs> this is a play and we have the great joy to perform it. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you all for taking the time to, to talk to me uh, this evening. And uh, I really appreciate uh this conversation and uh it sounds like uh another uh great dauntless show for the summer thank you so much for having us phil it's our absolute pleasure stageworthy is a canadian theater podcast produced by phil rickaby that's me Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests and perform the interviews, I also edit the show, promote the show, and I even created the music that you're hearing right now. I also shoulder all the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going while giving you this show for free. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things that you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share on social media. Even retweeting this episode will help. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all the episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode.